This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series, The Gospel According to Jacob, and our scripture reading is Genesis 29, 1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. 
Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Well, hey, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Nate, service of pastor here. It's great to be with you. Um, well, if you are just new or you need a refresher, we started a series a few weeks ago looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob's a deeply broken person, and what's really interesting, at the end of his life, he's profoundly changed. He's wonderfully transformed. And, and so far, what's been surprising about this, this entire life up to this point is Jacob is not a great character. And yet, what's remarkable is God does not come at him with uh, a set of rules or a set of morals. He actually meets him right where he is with grace. He actually welcomes him in. It's, it's very surprising because it's very clear when you read the life of Jacob, there's nothing about him that actually would make you think God would be even interested in him. And that's really good news uh, because whether you realize it or not, we are not so different from Jacob. And today, we begin to see that the God of grace that calls people like Jacob and welcomes them in to forgive them, uh, to welcome them in just as they are, is also a God, because of his grace, who will not leave them unchanged, but will actually be at work in his life to transform them, to actually deal with the self-centeredness, to deal with the sin, to actually work at removing it. As one of my friends puts it this way, God's grace is bent on changing us. And that's really helpful for us because today we get to catch a glimpse of how this takes place in Jacob's life, how he begins to change from a deeply broken person to a profoundly, deeply man of God who trusts God because it actually gives us a glimpse of how God meets the likes of you and me. So, one question today, how does God change people? And we're going to see three things. God changes us through providence, through a mirror, and through grace. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Almighty God, would you take this passage and would you work it into our lives so that by your Holy Spirit, we may reflect you more and more. Amen. Well, the original language of verse 1, when it talks about Jacob leaving, it says that Jacob lifted his heel. And there is a sense in which it's saying that there's this skip in Jacob's step. Uh, it's almost like he's walking on air. And the reason is at least twofold. One is, uh, as you may recall, he left his home with the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, which was which, was, which is what mattered most. It gave you status, it gave you significance, it gave you security, it gave you value, it gave you resources. Um, but secondly, last week we saw Jacob had this profound experience with God. God met him on the way. And he made a promise. He said, God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back here. 
And listen, even though for Jacob, this had not been an easy experience, leaving home under the circumstances of an angry brother because of him stealing the blessing, the, the, the text hints that Jacob's posture in the moment is one of a, as one commentator put it, a renewed vision of God's promise and a, and a renewed vision of God's character. And here's the thing. Things seem to only get better. There's this like clip in the text where there's nothing there and, and it's almost like he travels almost 500 miles and he ends up at a well. And there he finds some shepherds there with the sheep. And he says, hey, um, where do you guys come from? And they say, Haran. And that's surprising because that's where he's been wanting to go. And then he says, well, hey, do you, do you know a man named Laban? And they say, yeah. Is it well with him? Yeah, it's well with him. And then, wouldn't you know it, right after that happens, they go, oh, yeah, and by the way, here comes Rachel the daughter of Laban. And Jacob remarks just how unlikely this is because he says, it is still high day. In other words, it's not the normal time to show up at the well. And yet here she comes. And by the end of that first scene, Jacob is identifying himself with Rachel as, as the his mother being Laban's sister, he's weeping aloud, he's kissed Rachel. He's having one of those moments where seriously nothing could go any better. All of life is all fitting together with the pieces that he's always wanted. And once you know it, right, this is why he's been sent there. He's been sent to find a wife. And it wouldn't have been lost on him because he would have heard the story that his mother would have told him. That when Abraham's servant, years earlier, had come to a well, looking for a wife for Isaac, his father, and had met Rebekah. And here's Rachel. And at this point, if you've been paying attention at all to any of this account, you are thinking one thing. What are the chances? What are the chances? And that's the point. One of the things, um, one author puts it this way, this scene of, of um, Jacob meeting Rachel is an incredible scene of providence. It's, it's like Ruth meeting Boaz. It's like the book of Esther where God's fingerprints are all over it and yet his name isn't even in there once. It's this dynamic doctrine that God's providence means he's superintending and in control of all circumstances. And right here is one of those scenes where you can't help but see his fingerprints in it. And listen, friends, this is how God begins to change Jacob's life. By bringing him hundreds of miles to this exact moment, to this exact time, this exact place to meet Rachel, the daughter of Laban. This is how God begins to change him. And this is oftentimes how God brings about change in our lives. By simply bringing about the very circumstances of our lives. The ones we're in. Fast forward a few hundred years and uh, the Apostle Paul 
would write this in Romans. Um, He says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's, there's an important note here, a couple things to note. One is, it doesn't say merely some things work together for good. It says all things. Another important thing to note is it doesn't say that all things that happen are good. It doesn't say that. But rather, it simply affirms that in the midst of all circumstances, there's something that God is at work in our lives to bring about good. And verse 29 points it out. It's actually to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be like him. That's the goal. That's the purpose. This doctrine of providence, it can, be, it can seem very heady, but it's actually very practical. I, it means things like this, the family you grew up in, the marriage you're in right now, the relational challenges at home or work, the list goes on. They are not, God is not surprised by them. They actually have a purpose in our lives to actually conform us. And this is one of those teachings, I got to leave a lot on the floor because I recognize that some of you are wrestling with traumatic and horrifying situations. You've walked through deep suffering and that leaves a lot of questions a lot of things to wrestle through. And I would say this, if you're there this morning, you actually probably don't need a sermon. You need a shoulder to cry on. You need a community where you can weep and lament and mourn that, with, that which you walked through. And I do want you to know that the life of Redeemer City, what we seek to be is a community where that can take place, where you can be known where you can be welcomed in, where you can bring those doubts, those questions. We do this in city group life throughout the week. Um, We also provide counseling. There's a lot of things, ways you can engage. But let me just, for a moment, just say this. The providence of God, what we see in the life of Jacob and what it means for us, is it actually gives us confidence. It actually gives us confidence that right now, right now, God is at work in your life, in the very circumstances of your life, and that there is a purpose in it. It's not haphazard. And here's what's interesting. You might say, well, Nate, that's really nice because, I mean, Jacob just met his wife, his future wife. I mean, that's a pretty great providence. But what you don't understand is that this providential moment in Jacob's life actually leads to a lot of hardship, as we're going to see. It's a very painful, providential moment because we're going to see, actually, this leads to a crucible. And the crucible's name is Laban. And Laban is not a good dude. But it's what Jacob needs. In fact, that's the second point. Um... Jacob needs to see himself for who he is. He needs a mirror. And that's one of the things that God does in our life to bring about change in our lives is simply, in different ways, handing us a mirror. Seeing ourselves for who we really are. 
Not the cleaned up version we might put on on a Sunday morning. Not, not the cleaned up version that we might think that dismisses this or that, but like the high def version. You know, like the one where you can't get rid of the blotches, but you see all the things, all the wrinkles, all the warts. Or to put it another way, oftentimes we lack self-awareness. And the way that God begins to graciously be at work in Jacob's life and in ours is by giving us a mirror. And this happens for Jacob in his encounter with his uncle Laban, one who is more than his equal in trickery and deceit and self-servitude, as we'll soon to find out. So pick it back up. Rachel runs to get her father. Laban. And Laban runs out, runs to meet Jacob, and he embraces him and says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And after staying with him a month, Laban begins to make a contract with him. Look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? You know, as you encounter Laban, initially you might think, well, this is a pretty, pretty nice guy. I mean, he wants to pay him. But notice, that changes the relationship. It actually begins to give Laban leverage. It, it goes from a family to an employee-employer relationship. And Jacob, he doesn't see what's coming. He says, this is my chance. I'm going to get what I want. And so the passage sets it up that Laban has two daughters, right? Leah, who's the oldest. Rachel, who's the youngest. Rachel's much more attractive than Leah. And that's the one that Jacob wants. And so as Laban says, lay out your wages, where do you want to be paid? Jacob says, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And then Laban responds with, well, it's better that I give her to you than that she give her to another man. Stay with me. Which in time, Laban will fulfill. But let's be honest, there are some details that he's leaving out. It's like signing a contract and not reading the fine print. And so Jacob serves Laban for seven years. And there's that famous line, right, that it seemed to him only a few days line. And afterwards, Jacob comes to get his wage. In the passage, note that he's more than ready to be physically with Rachel. And so Laban, notice, doesn't answer anything to this demand. He simply gets the feast together. And in the evening, when it's dark, when the spouse would have been wearing a veil, after Jacob would have had plenty of wine, he switches out Leah for Rachel. And in the morning, there's that great line, behold, it was Leah. Snap. This is incredible. Well, Jacob is clearly upset. In verse 25, Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban responds, 
it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And friends, it is at this point where it must have dawned on Jacob that he was staring right in the mirror. For just as he had done to his brother Esau with a fine meal and with wine and in the cover of darkness exploited his father's blindness and switched out himself for Esau and got the blessing, so now Laban has with wine and a fine meal and in the cover of night done the same thing to him, switching out Rachel and replacing her with Leah. Friends, Jacob is convicted. He is looking in the mirror and he sees himself. A self-centered, dishonest man who has exploited others. And now it's been done to him. The shoe is on the other foot. And Jacob's convicted and humbled. And we know this because the text leaves us with a simple note that after the feast, he received Rachel and he worked another seven years. He didn't just skip town and say, I'm done with this. I've been treated unfairly. I'm just going to skip and go. He, he works another seven years. And friends, this is how God brings about change in our lives. He graciously, lovingly helps us to see ourselves for who we are. Um, my friend... Brian Gregory, he's helpful here. He puts it this way. What parent has not seen another parent being short with their kids only to realize that they have done the same? Or, or perhaps, you know, you, you gossip a little bit. But then you learn that someone else has been speaking behind your back and it gets back to you. Or perhaps you're at work. You play the politics game. You play it pretty well, but then only to be outdone by another, and you lose out on that position. Or you just see someone being critical or judgmental or self-righteous, and you soon realize in a matter of a moment, oh my, that's me. Um, Brian Gurry goes on to say this, it is hard to see in someone else your own sin being reflected back to you. But here's the thing. That's actually the grace of God at work in our lives. Because sometimes the grace of God works in our lives just as it did with Jacob by allowing us to taste some of our own medicine. But not just to see how messed up we are, but rather that we will be convicted and humbled and brought to repentance. And in being brought to repentance we'll begin to appreciate the grace of God. That's the mirror. Lastly, the grace. You know, years later, the very well that Jacob himself dug, Jesus met a woman. In the midst of that encounter, he begins to offer this woman living water. And he speaks of this water as a spring welling up to eternal life. And she says, that sounds good. Give me some of that. And then what Jesus does, he goes to the darkest, most shameful part of her life and he calls her on it. And yet what's remarkable about grace is that after this encounter, do you know what happens? 
This woman, after encountering Jesus and him revealing to her that he's the Christ, the one who has come, the one who will one day rescue all this world from sin and disease and death and everything else, she goes back to the town and she says this. Check this out. I think I just found the Christ. He's told me everything about me. He knows everything. That's the power of grace. There's a sense in which you can be deeply known all the way down and yet know that you're deeply loved and that actually transforms you. There's nothing like it. I mean, in our cultural moment, you kind of have the option of being canceled if you do a slip up. Or in religion, it's kind of this. It's like, here's the standard. Here's, the, here's what you have to do to be accepted. But grace is completely different. It inverts it. It says you are welcomed in, in and only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then that grace begins to work itself out in changing you. Let me uh, just invite the band back up as we close here. C.S. Lewis, at one point, talked about this process. And he used the analogy of our lives being like a house. That God comes in to rebuild and remake. And, you know, it's kind of one of those moments where um, at first you think, yeah, I know I've got some stuff I've got to figure out. You know, there's some leaky faucets. There's some drains that need to be worked on. That makes sense. But then he begins to do what all of us have seen happen on one of those extreme makeover home editions. You know, like when the demolition crew comes in and they begin to knock out walls. And Lewis at one point just says this, it hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make any sense what on earth is he up to? Well, you know when you're watching that show, you know what they're up to. They're making an entirely different house. Lewis goes on to say this. He concludes with this. The explanation is that he, God, is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it. You know, there's a moment on those shows, right, where there's, um, uh, sometimes it's a big bus, right? The people come back to their house and there's a loud guy that says, move that bus, right? Uh, other times uh, there's shows, right, where they have a picture of the old house and then they pull it back to see the new, right? There's an incredible moment where that happens. And here's, here's the hope of the Christian life, is that someday that's coming, right? Someday that house is coming. That someday that's who you will be, and here's the dynamic, that right now, presently, he's at work. And yet that's the hope, that he would take the likes of Jacob and the likes of you and me and be at work through providence, through a mirror, and through grace to make us more like him. Let's pray. Father, um, give us sensitivity this morning to be aware of where you are at work in our lives. And maybe this morning we don't even have a clue. It's just really hard right now in life. Give us strength to trust you in the midst of that. And give us hope to endure 
trusting that there is a purpose in that. And we pray that you would grant us the strength in the places where you are at work, convicting to know that that is actually a part of your plan, your gracious plan to transform us. And would you grant us the strength to not minimize, to not dismiss, but to repent. And yet again, trust all over again that your steadfast love remains. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.